Welcome to The Grizzly Beat, a podcast of Grizzly Times and Louisa Wilcox, where we interview scientific experts, managers, Native Americans, writers, and others to share their knowledge, perspectives, and experience. This comes at a time of enormous interest in the grizzly bear's future as the government proposes to remove federal protections and citizens are asking important questions. We hope the information shared here will help listeners shape their own answers. Welcome to the Grizzly Beat. This is Louisa Wilcox, and we're here today with Dr. Brad Bergstrom, who is a professor of biology at Valdosta State University, where he teaches courses on science as well as policy related to wildlife. And these include endangered species like wolves and grizzly bears. Brad brings important and unique insights into the grizzly bear debate of today. Brad, maybe you can introduce yourself and share a bit about your connection to the grizzly. Well, I'm professor of biology at Valdosta State University. Well, I'm a mammalian ecologist, uh, conservation biologist. Uh, I've done um, field studies of wild mammals for the past uh, 35 years or so. And I do have experience, field experience in the Rocky Mountains, not directly with carnivores. I uh, concentrated on the small mammals, but uh, you know, large carnivores and endangered species, species of conservation concern have been an interest of mine for many years, um, including their conservation and public policy regarding their conservation, especially. And I have, uh, you know, for 10 years, nearly 10 years, I chaired the Conservation Committee of the American Society of Mammalogists and uh, helped to draft many uh, society position letters over those years. And we very frequently got involved in large carnivore uh, issues because there are uh, many large carnivores that are severely threatened and endangered. The uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has a proposed rule to delist the population uh, in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem of the grizzly bear, just that population, what is known under the ESA <clears throat> law as a DPS or distinct population segment. Um, they would leave the other subpopulations of the grizzly bear in the lower 48 states listed. Um, and this has been a proposal uh, that they actually passed in 2006. So grizzly bears, they, they did finalize the rule and announced the delisting of that Yellowstone area population in 2006. And then a court uh, ruled that they did not fully consider the threats, the future threats to the survival of this population, most notably the uh, severe decline in whitebark pine, which grizzly bears use as a vital winter food supply. So they were essentially relisted by the courts uh, until today. And now the Fish and Wildlife Service has proposed that they have thoroughly examined what the court told them to examine, namely the whitebark pine. And based on their reading of the literature, and I might say a rather selective reading of the literature, they have determined that there is no real threat from <clears throat> decline of whitebark pine because there's so many other food sources that the grizzlies use. So that's where we're at. We, we're back to where, uh, potentially, to where we were in 2006. And uh, Fish and Wildlife Service wants to delist this, this population. Um, and we'll see if they do. So, Brad, can you talk a bit more about delisting and the American Society of Mammalogists' role in that debate? 
and maybe a bit more about grizzly bear recovery uh, broadly. Well, I do, I do have to go back to the society made a statement, the, the most powerful statement the society, that is the American Society of Mammalogists, can make is, is a membership resolution. And in 2001, we did pass a member's resolution unanimously, uh, really supporting the Fish and Wildlife Service's plan to reintroduce uh, grizzly bears to the Selway Bitterroot uh, wilderness area in Idaho. And it's a huge wilderness area that has plenty of good habitat for grizzly bears. The, the service already had proposed to do it, and, and our resolution supported that. And they still haven't done it, okay? Fast forward 15 years. We uh, wrote a letter um, in 2006, or whenever that proposed rule came out for public comment, we wrote a letter opposing the delisting at that time for many of the same reasons that, that we have more recently, this year, 2016, um, explicated. Uh, although, if anything, we know in, in that 10-year period, we know a lot more about the threats, more threats to the future survival of grizzly bears have emerged because the four major food resources of grizzly bears are all in decline, at least in some major parts of, of that range. So it's not just whitebark pine, it's, it's the native cutthroat trout, it's the army cutworm um, and elk populations. All of those are in decline. We have climate change going on. That is certain. The specific effects of it are uncertain, of course. Um, and this population is isolated, especially so because the Fish and Wildlife Service refused to honor their commitment to uh, reintroduce a population to the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness Area, which would have provided a vital dispersal link and therefore genetically connected uh, these two significant populations that are very widely separated, that being the Northern uh, Continental Divide ecosystem around Glacier National Park and then the Yellowstone. So without that uh, important link dispersal link between those two major populations, uh, that's another serious threat to the future, both demographic and genetic uh, prospects of this population. So how would prospects for connectivity be affected by the proposed delisting? Yeah, in recent years, um, it seems the Fish and Wildlife Service has shown a uh, predilection for using the DPS rule uh, which is called the distinct population segment rule, primarily only for delisting. Um, the, you know, in, in the past, they have mostly looked at entire taxa. So they will take an entire taxa on whether that's a full species or a subspecies, at least an officially named subspecies, and they will list the entire subspecies uh, typically. And but lately, in recent years, they have used this DPS rule primarily to, to carve out a population, just a segment of that subspecies, for example. And, you know, for a while they were using political boundaries, which the courts have almost exclusively ruled they cannot do. Uh, and now they're using, you know, kind of ecosystem level carving out of subsets of the taxon. So, I mean, we argued that the goal you know, to meet the intent of the ESA, the goal ought to be to recover the entire taxon. Uh, 
whether that's a species or subspecies. And in the case of the grizzly bear, that really would be the entire species of grizzly bear within the lower 48 states, okay? Um, and so that means in conservation genetic terms, that means managing that entire metapopulation. And to do that, you need to ensure that there's genetic connectivity, that there are successful immigrants and emigrants coming into and out of each subpopulation, that they're you know bringing uh, genetic diversity from elsewhere um, to, to prevent the long-term effects of uh, inbreeding depression, which can be a serious threat to the long-term survival. You're talking about um, an overall metapopulation in the lower 48 of 1,800 animals. And in the case of the subpopulation in the Yellowstone region, probably no more than 700 animals. So that's a, that's a small number uh, for the long-term maintenance of uh, genetic variation, which is necessary uh, for recovery. So Brad, maybe you could share a bit on the possible consequences of inbreeding. Yeah, I mean, you have only to look at uh, another example from a native uh, North American large carnivore, that being the Florida panther. Um, since they were isolated for many, many generations and got down to a very small size, uh, they had severe effects of genetic inbreeding such that over 90% of the males in the population were sterile, essentially. And so a genetic rescue had to be performed by bringing, uh, you know, breeding individuals from Western North America to, to mix in their genes with the existing population. So, and that's an extreme example, but it shows what can happen over the long term if you have isolation. So, you know, we don't want the greater Yellowstone ecosystem population to be genetically isolated for many, many generations. Um, and it takes a certain minimum number of, as I said before, successful immigrants uh, into all the subpopulations to provide enough of that genetic variation to prevent that kind of effect. You know, steril male sterility is one of many possible effects of uh, inbreeding depression. So how do you think U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has dealt with the issue of genetic isolation in the context of what you believe is important to achieve long-term recovery? Uh, yeah, that, I found that to be one of the strangest things in that proposed rule that the Fish and Wildlife Service actually seemed to blatantly misinterpret one of the references they cited. Um, and I went back and read that paper very carefully, and it did not say what the service claimed it said, which was that um, effective population size, which is arrived at by a formula, and it's a fraction of the actual census population, but that's what geneticists have to look at, the effective population, uh, which is always a fraction. It can be as little as a tenth, uh, maybe as most as a third of the census population. Well, they were saying that this particular reference um, claimed that the new minimum effective population size was 100 animals. Um, but geneticists you know, routinely cite the number 500, okay? five times what they were claiming as a minimum to maintain long-term genetic diversity. There are some gen population and, and conservation geneticists who actually argue for 5,000 for a long-term maintenance of genetic variation. So that's where most geneticists are 
most of them are more toward the 500 end, but certainly not at, not at 100. So when you look at the current population of 1800, that's, you know, region-wide in the lower 48, that could be, probably is an effective population of less than 300. Okay, so we're not anywhere near 500 yet in the effective population size. Um, to get there, you need you need bigger subpopulations and or better connected genetically to form a metapopulation. Um, and really you need for those individuals to, to slowly expand, naturally expand their range into other suitable habitats um, so that you establish other subpopulations and bolster the, the overall metapopulation. That's how you recover the whole species within the region. And that's clearly the intent of the law, the ESA, to do that. Can you explain a bit more about the role of Idaho's Selway Bitterroot ecosystem in light of this vision for recovery? Restoration of a, a viable population of grizzly bears in Idaho's Selway Bitterroot ecosystem is important because it it is one of the largest remaining chunks of suitable habitat, probably the largest remaining, um, that is currently unoccupied by grizzly bears. And it its intermediate geographic location between the two largest extant subpopulations, that is Greater Yellowstone and Northern Continental Divide, would make it a vital um, dispersal link so that bears, um, and you know, usually geneticists say you need to have uh, at least one successful migrant every generation um, moving between subpopulations to maintain that uh, genetic connectivity and, and thereby maintain proper levels of genetic variation. So right now there's a, there's a very large gap, several hundred mile gap between the two largest extant ecosystems and that Selway Bitterroot subpopulation would uh, be intermediate geographically and would provide, would, would aid that dispersal, would increase the size of the metapopulation, increase its effective population size, and um, bolster the metapopulation and make, you know, recovery of, of the grizzly bear in the region more likely. It is not currently recovered region-wide, and that would be a vital uh, I think next step, and it's something the Fish and Wildlife Service committed to in 2001, yet they haven't done. So, Brad, can you talk a little bit about your views on the major obstacles to achieving recovery? Well, that you know, uh, obstacles to basing um, management and um, you know ESA decisions on science alone, as the Act says, you know. Um, decisions to list and delist should be based on the best available science. Uh, obviously, you're dealing with an agency that has, it's part of the whole hierarchy of the executive branch, and decisions can be made at different levels. I mean, the, the biologist in the field is the lowest level within that agency. Um, then they have to re rely on other published studies and as it moves up the line, there are various filters, including the director of the Fish and Wildlife Service, the secretary of the interior, primarily those two, and then regional directors as well. Um, you know, we, there was a case recently with the Wolverine, which all the biologists agreed deserved to be listed as endangered. 
um, and primarily due to threats of climate change. And yet that decision was overturned apparently by a single person, the regional director. Um, so it's, it's pretty obvious that there are politics, there are political pressures uh, <clears throat> involved and political pressures, political considerations before that final decision is made. So it's not just the biologist consensus, but it is a political process necessarily. Um, the other thing is that there seems to be some inertia within the agency. <clears throat> um, the whole idea of recovery planning and recovery goals, they seem to be stuck in this outmoded philosophy of picking a magic number. All right, we're going to set a target and 20, 30 years later, we're going to come back to that target that we set, which was 100 animals or 500 animals, whatever it is. And we're going to just be faithful to that target number 20 or 30 years ago without regarding any of the scientific advances made within those last 20 or 30 years. Now, that to me does not honor the letter of the ESA, which says that their decision should be best on the uh, based on the best currently available science. The science changes, uh, but their quotas, their goals, their magic numbers, they don't change. So they, they're stuck in this mode of always looking at a magic number and saying, oh, see, we're several times above that recovery goal. That recovery goal is a very outmoded uh, way of doing things according to the current science. Brad, maybe you can touch on the role of the states in the push to delist. Well, there is state opposition to anything other than delisting. I, I think the states uh, in this particular case, Idaho and Wyoming particularly, and Montana to an extent, uh, want the species delisted as soon as possible so that they can satisfy the trophy hunting constituency. And I mean, I think that's basically it. So they want the recovery to be declared as soon as possible. And they have wanted this for many years. So there is always that pressure from the states on the federal agency that has to ultimately make the decision because the federal and state biologists, managers have to work together all the time on these issues. So yeah, the states in this case definitely want delisting. They want recovery to be declared, but the unaffiliated conservation biologists uh, are not agreed. There certainly is not a consensus that this population is indeed biologically recovered. Can you talk a bit about what the Endangered Species Act provides grizzlies that the states do not? Um, as long as the, uh, the species, the grizzly bear is listed under the ESA, it's the federal government primarily who funds uh, the monitoring and you know all the other aspects of of keeping that species listed because it's, it needs to be protected, its habitat needs to be protected. Uh, there needs to be a lot of study, a lot of monitoring. So most of that is federally funded. Uh, after a species is delisted, um, the federal government usually funds monitoring for a five-year period. And then after that, it's up to whatever the agreement uh, was made in the delisting rule, whether the states will pick that up um, presumably, if the states um, 
go, agree to manage the species after delisting, and that means there's going to be some hunting, they would have to make some effort to survey and estimate population size and also mortality rates in order to know whether they are causing that species to decline to the point where it would then, you know, qualify for relisting. Can you talk some more about trophy hunting of grizzly bears after delisting? There's there's always a um, trophy hunting component, and, and I, I use that term for large carnivores primarily because people who hunt large carnivores don't do so for, you know, to eat the animals that they've killed. Um, so it's it's unlike, you know, deer, elk, and so on, uh, the, the prey species, which are, which have historically been hunted for food, um, and which uh, species can withstand a certain amount of, you know, a certain greater amount of mortality due to hunting. But large carnivores, um, in many cases, they have very low mortality rates. So the grizzly bear, for example, it's a long-lived, slow-reproducing species um, whose natural mortality rate is probably less than 10%. So it, it really, it evolved without having to deal with high mortality. And if you add a significant component of human caused mortality, they are not uh, designed to deal with that as, you know, smaller animals, faster reproducing animals are. Do you have thoughts on the dynamics behind the state's push to delist grizzly bears? Um, typically with large carnivores, especially trophy hunting and um, ranching interests are, you know, heavily lobbying to uh, essentially to keep the populations of predators as low as possible. Um, and they, those two lobbies, particularly trophy hunting and, and cattle ranching, to a certain extent sheep ranching, uh, tend to have outsized influence in the Western states. And that, that is influence on state game boards, which are often politically appointed, um, and also on federal agencies that have to cooperate with the states. So yes, they receive heavy lobbying from those two industries, and they typically do not want to increase the numbers of large carnivores. And in some cases, they specifically want to decrease them. Certainly, uh, Idaho is a great example with the gray wolf. I mean, they uh, they are pretty open about their desire to um, decrease the current population of the gray wolf in their state. So, Brad, can you talk a bit more about the role of science in endangered species management and the requirement that U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service use the best available science? The, the phrase, um, the best currently available scientific data, I believe is what it says in the Endangered Species Act, was, was a very progressive way to write that bill because it anticipated that what we know about um, the, the factors that cause species to be endangered and the things we need to do to recover them are though you know that knowledge is going to change from year to year to year so uh, the politicians in the early 70s knew enough about science to know that it's always changing and so they were not attempting to write the bill as scientists of the early 1970s um, that's why that phrase appears and that's why the Fish and Wildlife Service's um, habit, long habit of using this magic number 
which even then we can argue that their numbers are too low, okay? But, but that very approach of using a magic number, a target number, um, is something that 20 years ago or more conservation geneticists may have relied on. But we've moved on from that. So it, the, the minimum population size is not something that conservation geneticists uh, focus on these days. They, they look at population viability, which is a very multifactorial analysis of uh, rates of birth and death and you know cause-specific mortality rates to determine if the population um, is functioning as it should be and is uh, large enough and stable enough, vital enough to stave off the long-term effects of inbreeding depression. So it's, it's not uh, the currently available science is to look at all of these um, rates and all the functionality of the population rather than just the number, okay? And that is what Fish and Wildlife Service has not fully embraced about the current science of conservation genetics. Can you share a bit more about the Endangered Species Act itself? The Endangered Species Act of 1973 was actually about the third iteration of legislation that was attempted starting in uh, the late 60s. And um, really, it came out of the whole environmental movement uh, after the first Earth Day in 1970. You know, we suddenly got the, the, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, all within a very short period of time, all signed by that great conservationist president, Richard Nixon. Uh, I mean, in that respect, he was very progressive. The, the Congress was very progressive. Endangered Species Act passed the Senate unanimously. In the House of Representatives, there were only four opposing votes. I mean, it, it's hard to imagine anything, any major legislation these days um, meeting that mark. Um, so it was an expression of the overwhelming will of the people. Let's clean up our environment and let's save the parts of it that are part of our natural heritage. So it was a very progressive act uh, not without controversy, especially after it was uh, first enacted, went into effect. There was, you know, almost immediately there was a controversy in the pitting of uh, a small uh, fish that had just been discovered in the Tennessee Valley with a giant dam and reservoir that was going to wipe out its only known habitat. So, um, you know, pitting preservation, um, uh, saving endangered species against development has been uh, a tension point from the start. And um, nowadays, you know, the same thing is true with many endangered species because uh, developers will say it's, it's, it's hampering economic development. You know, ranchers will say this, this carnivore is, is damaging my business. And so there, there are conflicts, but the act is written in, in a general enough way to, to embrace the current science, whatever that happens to be. Uh, and it's been highly successful. It has saved um, something like 99% of the species that have been listed uh, since its enactment have been saved from extinction. Okay. And uh, we really, you know, we're only talking about 40 some years since it was enacted. And that's actually not enough time for many species to have fully recovered. 
But many species have recovered, and, and everybody knows about, you know, the bald eagle, for example, and the spectacular recovery that was made uh, in that case, and, and many others. Do you think that the definition of recovery by Fish and Wildlife Service needs to change? Yes, I definitely think that our whole idea and definition of recovery needs, especially that which is um, ruled upon by the Fish and Wildlife Service, who has to make these decisions about delisting, uh, we need to base it on the best available, currently available science. And I think we need to look at the full functionality of a population uh, where it has been restored. And we also need to look at range-wide considerations because another important phrase in the act is that uh, no species should be threatened with extinction over a significant portion of its range. There's been a lot of debate about what that phrase means. Although if you go back to the original um, you know, writers, authors of the act, it seems clear that they meant the historic range of the species. And as a practical matter, you know, we're not going to restore grizzly bears to the entire range of, you know, original range pre-settlement. But, but certainly uh, it seems that the intent is to restore uh, a species to all suitable range so all parts of their historic range that, that are currently or could be through proper management be made to be suitable a habitat. And, you know, oftentimes for large carnivores, this is going to be primarily um, federal public lands, a lot of it wilderness areas. And, of course, the species is going to range to a certain degree on private lands, um, especially during dispersal. So we have to look at range-wide what is the available suitable habitat? Uh, are there any significant portions of it that are not yet recolonized, reoccupied by that species? And if so, we need to allow that to happen, okay? And then we need to have a functioning population that is at a level of what can be defined as ecological effectiveness. Are they playing their role in the ecosystem, whether that be an apex predator or, or whatever? Are they... Um, functioning in that ecosystem the way they evolved to function over, you know, at least most of that historic range that is currently offers suitable habitat. So I think that's how restoration should be, should be defined, how recovery should be defined, rather than just looking at some minimum number and leaving it at that. So Brad. Do you have thoughts on how endangered species decision-making might be improved? Yeah, how the, the uh, decisions are actually made about endangered species in terms of listing and delisting, especially in terms of delisting, is not very well uh, delineated in, in the law. That's where there's a lot of gray area for the agency to kind of decide what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. I think that at various times in the past, uh, the agency has, has done the right thing only after being ordered to by the courts, by the federal courts. And in one such case, they convened, they, they uh, essentially outsourced the process to a third party, a well-known um, 
organization that, that works out of University of California. That organization put together an independent panel of experts on the issue, so conservation geneticists and, and so forth. And that panel met and looked at all the current information and you know made recommendations, very, very detailed recommendations. And the service, by and large, followed them. This is in the case of a small jumping mouse in Colorado and Wyoming. Um, now, since then, that, that happened in uh, the mid-2000s. They, they don't seem to have gone back to that approach. They, they sort of tried it one time with the gray wolf delisting, but they got into all kinds of um, hot water because they, uh, they went and looked at the history of each potential peer reviewer of their proposed rule. And anybody who'd ever stated an opinion uh, one way or the other on whether this species should be listed or not was immediately excluded from consideration as being a peer reviewer. Well, that excluded many, if not most, of the leading experts on the gray wolf, you know, independent scientists uh, on the gray wolf at the time. So they had to scrap that whole plan and, um, and admit that they, you know, just stating an opinion science-based should not disqualify uh, somebody from being an expert when he or she truly is an expert. So I think it would make more sense and it would avoid more controversy if they assembled this panel, uh, perhaps guided by, you know, outsourced to a third party that, that does this kind of thing. And you could even, the, the, the uh, National Academy of Sciences could even do this highly regarded board, um, have that panel review all the data and advise the Fish and Wildlife Service along with their own biologists on what the decision should be before they even publicize it. Um, the, the practice now, uh, which is not, you know, which is, which is not delineated in the legislation, it's all, you know, it's executive orders, it's just rules within the agency. Practice now is for the agency itself to come up with the proposed rule and then put it out for public comment. And then everybody in the public has a chance to comment, but they've already staked out their position without first, you know, convening an independent panel. And I think if they did it that way, um, they'd avoid a lot of controversy because they could say, uh, you know, especially if they happen to agree with the independent panel, it's a, these independent scientists agree um, on this decision with our biologists and so on. I would like to see that happen in the future. So can you review in brief your thoughts on the major problems with delisting? Yeah, the, the um, proponents of keeping a tax on listed longer typically are you know, believe or and or, you know, know based on currently available science that the chances of true recovery would be better if they remained under federal protection rather than management being turned over to the states. And I think one of the other controversies is the fact that, again, with large carnivores, they are, there is a knowledge that they're going to be hunted in some cases, almost immediately after they're delisted. Um, and hunting is 
something that you know state management agencies try to get a handle on. They try to to know exactly what the effect is on populations, but we can never really know. And when hunting becomes legalized, it you know many conservation biologists are afraid that the population will suffer excessive mortality, will start to decline. There are even recent published studies that once hunting is legalized on a species, um, in contrast to prior belief, the poaching of that species actually increases. You know, many people believe it's the opposite relationship, but so you have quantifiable and unquantifiable additional mortality on these populations that are just barely recovered. Um, and that's why conservation biologists think that there needs to be a, a broader, you know, geographic region of recovery, higher population sizes than what Fish and Wildlife Service is thinking they need, and better genetic connectivity between subpopulations in order to, you know, withstand that human-caused mortality. Can you share your thinking on why grizzly bears matter to the ecosystem? Yeah, I think, again, grizzly bears uh, are, are, first of all, bears are omnivores. So in some cases, they may act as apex predators. They may have um, these sort of trickle-down effects on the ecosystem, probably not clearly as much as the gray wolf has, which is, you know, strictly a, a carnivore. Um, but they have uh, interactions in many other ways with, because they sort of occupy multiple trophic levels. So on the one hand, they can act as apex predators uh, along with wolves and cougars. Um, on the other hand, they, uh, you know, they have evolved with uh, their plant uh, species that they consume, such as white bark pine, uh, even insect species, and, and of course, ungulate species. So. Um, they have evolved partly as, as a top predator, partly as an omnivore. Um, and they, they fit into this set, this suite of species of large mammalian carnivores, which, which are, are most diverse and most prevalent uh, in the mountainous west, especially in the northern Rockies and, and nearby areas. So, I mean, what, what they're doing in Yellowstone, in the Yellowstone region is they've you know fully reintegrated now that Yellowstone National Park has restored all of its native large mammals, they fully reintegrated into that ecosystem. They need to do that same thing elsewhere. Selway Bitterroot Wilderness, for example, perhaps parts of um, the Colorado Rockies, southwestern Colorado, for an example, uh, where there's abundant food sources and, and perhaps even Northern California. Um, so once they've kind of done that, they have reached ecological effectiveness, been restored to their natural function in the ecosystem, then, you know, they'll, they'll be uh, much better recovered than, um, than they are now. Thank you so much, Brad. This is Louisa Wilcox with Dr. Brad Bergstrom and the Grizzly Beat. Thank you.